I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. We're absolutely delighted to be hosting this event today in conjunction with the London Review Bookshop with two of Turkey's top young writers. So we're here to discuss the state of Turkey, is the rather broad-ranging title of the event. So Turkey, as I'm sure you all know, is at a really fascinating and troubling crossroads, sort of stuck between the West and Russia. It's impacted by the ripples of the Syrian conflict. Uh, It's ruled by an increasingly forceful leader. I'm sure... I'm not alone in the audience here with having the recent events on the 15th of July rather etched into my mind. There were images on news broadcasts all over the world, of fighter jets over Ankara and Istanbul, as the military attempted to seize control, and then the counter-protests uh, that followed to defend the government. As a sort of casual observer of events in Turkey, I found it particularly interesting, the blurred boundaries as anyone, I think, would assume, the military intervening uh, and stepping in is not a great thing for democracy, particularly in a country like Turkey, where recent history is really blighted by military interventions and by dictatorship. Uh, But I think what I found particularly interesting was that many people also argued that the military has a role to play as the custodian of democracy, as as the custodian of the republic. Quite counterintuitive, and whether or not you agree with it, the fact that the argument exists... I think tells you a lot about the sort of increasingly authoritarian nature of Erdogan's AKP government, that tendency that's really stepped up in the aftermath of the coup. I think also when talking about Turkey in the context of a major Western capital city where we're all sitting, you have to consider the sort of Western media narratives that have existed around Turkey and its governance. You know, for years and years, it was that Turkey is a beacon of success in a chaotic region, It's a prime example of how to blend moderate Islam, however you define it, uh, with democracy. Uh, And the fact is, you know, long before the coup attempt events undermined that narrative, not least the hugely wide-scale civil unrest and demonstrations that swept the country in 2013, I think that narrative's kind of crumbled in today's political context. So in the two months since the coup attempt, tens of thousands have been arrested uh, or detained for questioning, including soldiers, civil servants journalists, writers, lawyers, more than 3,000 judges, 160 media outlets, and more than 2,000 educational institutions have been shut down. No one's better equipped to discuss these developments than our two speakers tonight. So we have Ece Tumelkirin, who's one of Turkey's best-known authors and political commentators. She's won numerous awards for her work, including the Pen for Peace Award and the Turkish Journalist of the Year. She was a journalist until her outspoken criticism of government repression led to her losing her job. Her latest book, which is on sale here, uh, is Turkey, the Insane and the Melancholy. Uh, It explores the struggles and tragedies which make modern Turkey what it is today, combining history and memoir to examine creeping commercialization and authoritarianism in this rich and complex country. We've also got Kaya Gent, who is a novelist and essayist from Istanbul, one of Turkey's top young writers. His non-fiction writing has appeared in a huge range of international publications, including the London Review of Books and the New Humanist, also the FT, The Guardian, The Paris Review, and others. Uh, He's Istanbul correspondent for The Believer and the LA Review of Books. His new book, Under the Shadow, Rage and Revolution in Modern Turkey, uh, for that he's spoken to activists from both sides of the political divide, the Gezi Park protesters, supporters of Erdogan's conservative vision, and many others, 
to examine the conflict between history and modernity in the Middle East and show a divided country coming to terms with the 21st century. Now, Ece, to, to start off, throughout your book, you talk about the fact that Turkey is often viewed as a bridge between East and West. You kind of start and conclude with that idea uh, and the sort of huge cultural impact that's had. Uh, so I just wondered if you could talk a bit about that and, and sort of the increasing importance of East versus West in, in modern-day Turkey. Well, you said all the cheerful stuff, so you yeah. said nothing else. Like, yeah. you know, all the <laughs> most, you know, funny stuff about yeah. Turkey. So yeah. there is not much to tell about that, yeah. you know, more than that. And you are definitely more pretty than Danny also. <laughs> Thanks. Someone had to sell that, I think. <laughs> this is a book about Turkey. Well, I'm sure many of you have been reading about Turkey uh, without even wanting it. Uh, or seeing about Turkey on television. And it's mostly about Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the authoritarian regime, and how people are, you know, oppressed and so on and so forth, and, and especially the sloppy coup attempt that happened on 15th of July. But then I think Turkey's story is much bigger than that. And, you know, uh, the journalism is a funny thing. You know, the cameras and the lenses of the photo, uh, photo machine, the, the cameras are directed to countries when crazy things happen. And whenever the crazy stuff is not there anymore, the cameras are not there anymore either. So you don't know the story before the crazy stuff happened, and you don't know the you know, stuff that happens after the crazy stuff. This is the book, I think, and I tried to write the book about Turkey before the journalists arrived and after the journalists went away. I think more interesting than the you know, reporting uh, on Turkey. You know, I would be telling all those things, yeah. uh-huh. what you told about Turkey, yeah. so, but since you told them yeah. already, I feel like, um, yeah. you know, this reflexive counter-emotion, well, it, actually, it's not yeah. that bad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, think that, I think that's really interesting, actually, when I think when you're from a place that's often written about in a certain way. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. this is an important, yeah. uh, you know, uh, opening in yeah. history, uh, if you will. Uh, because for 10 years, or more than 10 years actually, after AKP come to, came to power, people like me, writers like me, were kind of invisible. And I have many stories about that taking place in London, in Oxford, in you know, many cities in Europe. Uh, but all of a sudden, after I think Gezi uprising, which Ge- uh, Kaya wrote about in a very nice way, after Gezi uprising, the, there was this dramatic shift from Western media uh, in their approach to Turkey. It was something like, you know, not understanding Turkey for 10 years. And then after Gezi, it was complete misunderstanding of Turkey. Because before Gezi, uh, uh, Mr. Erdogan was, uh, as you said, beacon of light. You know, he was the savior of democracy. And finally, real democracy arrived in Turkey. Hooray! You know, army's strong hand is finally removed from the administration. How lucky Turkish people are. For 10 years, we listened to that from, uh, listened to this uh, narrative, discourse from mainstream Western media. Mm. And after Gezi, it was all of a sudden, mother of all evils is Mr. <laughs> Erdogan. And there is nothing else in Turkey. I mean, there is no other problem. If Erdogan is not there anymore, everything will be resolved. And, and as you can uh, already know, I mean, like, it's not the story, it's... There's a big, long story of Turkish model and how it ruined the lives of many, not only in Turkey, but throughout the region. Uh, so we are basically, you know, guinea pigs of a failed experiment, a massive scale experiment, an ideological experiment. So the book actually tells about the you know, emotional part of that fact that we are guinea pigs. Um, yeah, one of the things you talk about in the book, you say it's the Turkey is going through Dubaiization. I wonder uh, yeah. if you could sort of explain a bit about that. What you mean by that? Yeah. I think it is uh, a good photo option for Western media to talk about Islamization and Islamization. How do yeah. you pronounce Islamization, that? Islamization. Yeah. Islamization uh, in word, Turkey it? because it gives a good photo. You know, the yes. the girl with the miniskirt and the girl with the headscarf thing. But then I think the main problem in Turkey and the main problem of Turkish model wasn't Islamization. And the ultimate goal wasn't Islamizing, Islamizing a secular country, but actually it was Dubaiizing the country. It was, there was a process which I call Dubaiization. Basically establishing parallel lives in one country. 
So if you want to have secular, you know, lifestyle, you ha if you have, if you want individual rights, uh, you know, freedoms and so on and so forth, you have to be upper class. You have to live in uh, gated communities like they do in Saudi, in you know, Gulf countries. Uh, whereas if you are a common person, if you are, you know, middle class or you know, lower class, then you are supposed to be subjected to the, you know, conservative Islamist lifestyle. Let's say. So this is Dubaiization for me, to the, the hypocrisy of living two different lifestyles as if uh, there is only one uh, Islamist conservative country. And one more thing, you know, about Dubaiization. Mm -hmm. Actually, Gezi was against this uh, Dubaiization of Turkey in a way, uh, because Dubaiization is not only this, this, you know, parallel lives and the hypocrisy of it, but also it, it destroys the public space. When you destroy the public space, there is no politics anymore. There is no streets to go out and shout. I don't know how many of you have been to Dubai or Gulf countries, but there is no public space. You don't walk in Gulf countries. You go from one building to the other. And this was the ultimate goal, of, this has been, the ultimate goal of this government, I think, to make a bigger Dubai out of Turkey. This is why Taksim Square was supposed to be the you know, shopping mall and everything. And all those young people were in the first place resisting the idea of this Taksim Square uh, becoming something else than it is right now. It was actually an act against this Dubaiization as well, among many other things. It's interesting. I wanted to pick on, up on something you said earlier about uh, the, the misunderstandings and the successive different misunderstandings of Turkey in, in the Western media narratives. I'm, I wonder what you think the, the key misunderstandings are. So what's been, what's been wrong about the way we talk about Turkey? The sarcasm and cynicism mm. of Middle Eastern mm. people towards Western media uh, is some sort of folkloric <laughs> thing. You know, when the, you know, the guys from, I don't know, CNN Turk or CNN or BBC, they, when they come, they hear this. Oh, it's so complicated. You wouldn't understand it. Like, this country is so complicated. <laughs> I don't want to get into, you know, yeah, fall yeah, into that category of, you know, yeah. oh, my country is so complicated. Yeah. I only can understand yeah. it. But then I think there is this, and this, this I think, is an ideological yeah. uh, choice uh, to forget the history which happened in between 1950s and 1980s. A generation of progressive people, secular and leftist people, it was a, a generation was vanished there. Mm. That's why we are we ended up uh, this society now where progressive people are a very very small minority. Mm. So when you don't when when you don't want to talk about that period of time, you cannot understand the rest of the history. And when you don't know about 1980 coup. You cannot understand why AKP is there and why a majority of the society is supporting this government. Mm. Because I was on hard talk, as I told yeah. before, because, you know, I, I have been tortured, yeah. so I'm yeah. repeating it. <laughs> it's like I'm trying to overcome the trauma. But then there and many, in many other places, I've been asked the same question. So you're complaining about this government. So why is the majority supporting the government? Hey, this is really complicated to yeah. talk about unless you talk about 1980 coup and how this society has been transformed in the most dramatic and even tragic way. Mm. Kaya, I'm going to come on to you. Um, so among other things, your book explores the Im huge impact that 20 days of protest in 2013 had on Turkey. Uh, and one observation that you make quite early on in the book really jumped out at me, which is that you, you just make the, the observation that Gezi Park uh, was filled in 2013 with people protesting against the government and then again in 2016 with people protesting for the government. Mm. Um, so I wonder what, what changed in the interim, if, if anything. Yeah, we suddenly received a text message yeah. to fill the squares and be like, just go out and be a protester. Resist. Yeah. From, <laughs> from the same force who was gazing yeah. the activists. But uh, on, in the first case only, not in the second case. <laughs> So, writing, it, writing this book, my idea was like, um, how can I be objective? You know, there are like people who went, uh, who went to these squares after the coup, mm. and there were those who went to these squares during Gezi. Different people, you know, different mm. kind of energies are being released. And what's my position here? How can I represent yeah. this? And I, I was listening to this podcast called Serial, mm -hmm. uh, Sarah Koenig's oh, yeah. uh, program. And I was really moved by the way she was constantly being undecided about the case. You know, mm. 
is Adnan Sayed, the, the guy who's storytelling. Yeah. Is he guilty or is he innocent? With every episode, uh, she would change her mind because according to different interviews, she would get new information. And with new information, she would change her mind. So I wanted to make the book a bit like that. Let's talk to a young AGP supporter and um, let's, let's accept him as he is and let's accept and respect his history and his beliefs and his legacy he thinks he's uh, representing as a serious thing. And let's give him uh, some acknowledgement. And then let's do the same thing to a Gezi supporter. And, of course, the Gezi supporters were represented as these, you know, mad people who were just out of their minds, you know, having sex in, in, in those tents who had no message to take seriously. And so let's, uh, let's be undecided throughout the book. That was the way I constructed it. Uh, for example, there was this Netflix documentary called uh, The Making of a Murderer, yeah. where the uh, documentary makers are convinced that the guy is uh, innocent. Mm. I didn't want to make it like that. I wanted to experience uh, their ideas, their frustrations, as I write the book, as I mm. talk to them, and not approach them with a you know, preset idea mm. about you know, whether conservatives are good, whether they're bad. So... Uh, Ajay's excellent book makes yeah. it focuses on the 1980 coup, and I, I took it a bit um, a bit back and to the Tanzimat. My my beginning point was the Tanzimat, and let's mm-hmm. let's uh, approach these young conservatives, these people, as parts of this intellectual movement, yeah. just like the Gezi people. Let's uh, g- give them the seriousness they deserve yeah. because. Uh, conservatives have this intellectual history, intellectual legacy in this country, and it begins with Turkey's westernization in mm-hmm. 1850s. And so they're born as a reaction to that. Uh, let's not westernize, let's not be like Europeans, let's keep our sultanate intact, mm-hmm. let's, uh, let's have this guy who's the sultan and let's have another kind of democracy. Mm-hmm. And so all these ideas came from the young Ottoman movement and mm-hmm. I wanted to see those uh, young conservatives as part of that young Ottoman movement and to, to, to be able to understand them because that's how they, how they see them. Mm-hmm. They don't see themselves as these, you know, these mad people on the streets yeah. kicking the ass of you know, <laughs> these leftists. They see themselves as part of that movement. But then again, uh, the Young Turk movement, uh, which you know, Ece talked greatly about, like in the last 10 years, they were demonized. You know, like, are you a camelist? You, you, you belong to the madhouse, you know, you, you shouldn't be here. Mm-hmm. We are normalizing the country. You're camelists, secularists, you're just Islamophobic and mm-hmm. you know nothing about this country. But then when you look at them, Young Turk movement is a continuation of the Young Ottoman movement. And mm-hmm. they're like, uh, they're like complementing each other. And mm-hmm. when we try to demonize these movements, we don't get Turkey because uh, they've been historically flown together mm. throughout more than 150 years. Uh, I think that those kinds of divisions in the population uh, are very interesting. And you speak about the, the current Turkish government in the book as being um, sort of oppressive for one half of the population and protective for the other half. Uh, and I wonder how, how, you, see, how, how you see those, di- those divisions of ha- as having developed. Think, do you think that's something that's very rooted in that kind of intellectual history? Has have those divisions been there for a long time? Yep. Uh, some people want that kind of sultan figure. Yeah. You know, you have your queen. Why don't we have yeah. our sultan? <laughs> you know, uh, why not? You know, why don't we develop a what we call yearly and mainly the local and national uh, yeah. new democracy? Why don't we develop it? Now, of course, um, as Edge's book uh, chronicles. Mm-hmm. You know, young Turks are to blame for lots of things, and yeah. just like young Ottomans, you know, they've been, they've done a dirty job of these mm-hmm. intellectual projects in practice. Yeah. But when you look at these intellectuals, uh, these Namu Kemal's and uh, all these young writers, they had big ambitions, and they they were like, they were first of all intellectuals, mm. and um, so we have to go back to their intellectual roots to understand what's being uh, discussed here, because. You know, lots of the politicians in Turkey are either poets, for example, we've got uh, f- figures like Bülent Ecevit, for example, yeah. a translator of Tagore and like this, mm-hmm. like this very intellectual man. 
and uh, you, you may not like Erdogan's ideas, but you know he really knows the uh, the Muslim culture, the all these uh, conservative writers. That tradition is really well read in that, and uh, those Kemalist writers who were imprisoned in 2000s, they really knew what they were talking about, yeah. and um, uh, so in our in our unwillingness to accept Turkey as it is, mm. we just accuse them of being you know lunatics. You know mm. what what kind of uh, why, why are you talking about Atatürk's ideas or mm. like this conservative writer? Uh, but they mean lots of things for. Turkish people, mm. and so we have to intellectualize the discussion about Turkey. So my yeah. book is an attempt to do that. Also, just before we move on to a, a wider discussion, the subtitle of your book is "Rage and Revolution in Modern Turkey," and I think throughout the anger and frustration felt by many on different sides of those sort of intellectual divides comes through. Uh, why do you think there is such such rage and frustration, um, sort of seemingly from all, from all quarters? You know, I mean, it's in our genes, you know, yeah. the, the young Turk, you know, when yeah. you say young Turk in, in, in any part of the world, uh, it means something, you know, it, has, it doesn't have to be about Turkey, you know, yeah. about Turks. There's the young Turk program in the yeah. U.S., it's hilarious, yeah. and there is always the young Turk in every classroom, you know, yeah. like you go to France, yeah. it doesn't have to be a Turkish, yeah. uh, but, you know, going against the flow uh, and, you know, fighting the establishment. And uh, it's, that spirit runs in both, uh, in both parts of the society. In every three years, four years, people want to release that energy. That they want to be on the squares. Uh, so in the book, I talk about a cert certain uh, liberal, fake liberal consensus that was built in 2000s, uh, where people were like, why are you on the streets? It's so old-fashioned. Why are you protesting? Just enjoy life, enjoy capitalism, the Dubaiization. Don't worry about those people in Silivri. They're, you know, they're just Milosevic-like people who are like, you know, extreme nationalists. We don't want them among us. So just leave these squares to forces of commerce. But the fake liberal consensus has collapsed uh, because uh, the, the young Turkish and the young Ottoman spirit is in direct opposition to that mm. liberal consensus. People don't like. Uh, when 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 you say we are going to be normalized, liberalized, people don't like it. Young yeah. people don't like it. They, you know, instinctively react to it. Yeah. No, I'm a I'm a young Turk. I don't like that. Yeah. I don't want to be normalized. <laughs> That's the spirit. One thing that you both talk about in your book in, in books in different ways is uh, the sort of quite particular relationship with memory in in Turkey. And you both talk about the Turkish school system and its role over the years in enforcing rewritten versions of history. I think the way you put it, Eche, is a, a division between official memory and actual memory. And you both talk about the importance of that and sort of imbuing uh, a sense of who enemies are and who traitors are and these things. So I wanted to ask both of you, I'll ask Eche first and then Kaya, uh, how that sort of very particular relationship with history affects people's engagement with politics in the modern context. When you look at you know any country, any country in turmoil, you'll see, you know... Uh, clashing narratives. I lived in Beirut mm. for almost a year and then uh, while I was in Beirut I noticed that uh, actually every sect is teaching another history about mm. Lebanon. There, so there is no one history <laughs> of Lebanon. You know, kind of shocked. Oh, but this is amazing. So they are different, you know, learning different uh, mm. histories, different narratives, you know, and most of them are very much contradictory narratives. And then I noticed that actually this is happening in my country as well. Yeah. <laughs> you, know. <laughs> you know, for a Kurdish person, it's a completely different history. Yeah. And a person, a Turkish person in, uh, living in on, on the west, western coast in Turkey would not have a clue about, a, you know, this Kurdish history, the legends, the myths, the, you know, the, 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 the history of war, that has been carved in their memory. This is one thing. But uh, I wrote another book, Deep Mountain Across to mm. uh, Turkish-Armenian Divide, which was published by Wurso a few years ago. And when it comes to Armenian case, it's even more obvious, I think. What I think is this: there is this uh, tradition of forgetting mm. in Turkey. And that tradition of forgetting begins with 1915. It's an exercise of... Uh, political exercise of forgetting, which has been repeated since 1915, and we came became such masters in this that now you know three weeks ago is prehistoric to us. 
you know, we don't have to remember it was three weeks ago. Uh, so this uh, does not only create loss of memory, clashing, wrong narratives, and so on and so forth, but also it creates an ethical problem, uh, not only in political life, but also in our individual lives. Because when you start forgetting and when you praise forgetting, when you motivate forgetting, then you don't have to, have, you don't have to face the question of consistency. So in Turkish politics, which I told in a very funny way in the book, uh, there is this uh, comfort for politicians. They don't have to be consistent with anything, with themselves, you mm-hmm. see? There's, there's a section in, in the book which starts with this uh, seemingly uh, ridiculous sentence. Uh, yesterday is yesterday, tomorrow, uh, today is today. So this wouldn't mean a thing for a mm-hmm. British person. But it, this whole Turkish policy, politics, political culture is based on this sentence which has been told by Süleyman Demirel, one of the former presidents, uh, when he was asked, why did you say yes to the execution of three young men in 1971 when you were a politician? You raised your hand saying yes to these 20-year-old something kids, uh, and they were executed because of you. And he said, yesterday is yesterday, today is today. Let's not talk about yesterday. So this is uh, the dominant political culture in Turkey, and this is why forgetting is so tragic, Mm. in a way. And, yeah, there are other aspects of memory loss and how we are inclined to memory loss, uh, even in our individual lives, but... I think this is more or less the core of the, you know, forgetting memory and consistency and political culture mm, matter. It's fascinating. Would you, would you agree with that, that sort of political expedience of, of forgetting? Yeah, the, the, the decade we want to remember is 1920s. Yeah. We are like reliving 1920s all the time. It's like Turkey is under attack from foreign powers. They want to divide the country and we need leaders who can keep the country united. That's, that's like that decade is being played again and again. Mm. So the kind of discourse being used by the government is like new Turkey. Mm. And you think oh, it's going to be a new Turkey, but Atatürk was also using the word new Turkey. Yes. So uh, history is very much alive in the present, and present is always about uh, the beginning moment of the republic, you know, like, mm. the, like how this republic began, yeah. how did it become a success story. Yeah. Of course, we know that it wasn't a success story. It, yeah. it had all these... It led to all these uh, victimizations and problems. But then it's still here. The Republic is still here. So how can we rebuild, rebuild mm. the uh, re- Republic again and again? So we always go back to some 1920s, like the beginnings or the ends, like mm. Atatürk's certain uh, periods in Atatürk's life, when he was more radical, when he was more moderate. Mm. For example, now there's a Muslim Atatürk very much uh, in, in vogue yeah. uh, because... There are pictures of him praying and like when opening the parliament. And so that's, that's the image of Atatürk that can be used right now because he's like, he's one with his people, he likes Islam and he's also the leader of the republic. Uh, but then we always re-instrumentalize uh, those images. And um, it's, it's scary when you see some people yeah. using them to uh, you know, go after Armenians and Kurds. But then... After the coup attempt, um, I think there was a, maybe a more positive spirit because it was used to be like, yeah, let's have the unity of the republic again. Let's hit the uh, Yenikapı square together, like the republicans and the conservatives, and let's read the Nazimit Met poems and mm-hmm. also like conservative poets at mm-hmm. the same time. So, but again, it was a reappropriation of the uh, republican. Uh, uh, history mm. for like just two months ago <laughs> and when we go back I'm sure it will be re-instrumentalized again for something yeah. else So my next question, I don't want to give you a traumatic flashbacks to hard talk but uh, <laughs> I wanted to ask about the, the continued appeal of, of Erdogan and the AKP to huge, a huge proportion of the population in Turkey uh, so sort of why is that? So I think when uh, particularly in in the West, as we've spoken already extensively about sort of what dominant Western media narratives 
uh, you have uh, an increasing perception he's authoritarian, he's doing all these terrible things and so on. So what, what's, the, what's the continued appeal? So I'll start with you, Mr. Empire. Yeah, I'm not, let me tell you about July 15, that yeah. night, you know, a, a very hot night. I'm editing the proofs of my book and uh, th we don't have the epilogue yet. Uh, just I'm editing the index and then um, I'm, I'm sitting next to a Tereta radio in Taksim. And then there are news of all these soldiers uh, cordoning the uh, bridge. And then I take retreat to my house, and my mother tells me to buy lots of bread. And my ex-girlfriend calls yeah. me, and she's like, "Do you have enough water?" So let's get back together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all sorts of crazy things happened that night. <laughs> she left me with water. <laughs> And so that's an option. <laughs> I'm like thinking about my book, my summer, and I'm gonna be like, I'm, I might be able to publish this book. What's gonna happen? And so this presenter appears on the public TV, and she's like, "The Turkish uh, military has taken over the control, and now we are in charge." And so every TV channel they're going there. Oh, wow. So people are calling and say they say that Erdogan escaped to Greece and uh, yeah. reported in the NBC. So everyone is like, "So what's going to happen?" So then they start bombing the parliament. And my feeling was like, who can stop this? Yeah. And, you know, you can't trust the army because the army is bombing people. The, the, the only thing that can uh, make Turkey normal again would be a return to the symbolic order, which is represented by Erdogan. Yeah. And so his, uh, his arrival in Atatürk airport, all the supporters are like chanting and so happy, you know, you, you, you don't have to agree with them, but we got a sense of security that morning when we saw that image. It's yeah. going to be like the, the Turkey we need for the past few years, yeah. you know. We don't have to be fans of that Turkey, but still it's going to be better than, you know, uh, soldiers on the streets yeah. and who are these soldiers, we don't know. So he's become a sort of... Uh, figure of security, you know, like for a long time, the army was the leading uh, institution that made people feel secure, like in every public poll, they'd say army. But with this, it changed. Now, people are like, he saved us. Maybe, you know, like, when you think logically, how can one people save us? I mean, of course, it didn't happen, but it's like, he's this symbolic orders, the symbolic orders organized around him. So that's, I think what many people felt uh, in the morning of, of the failed coup. Coming to you, Ece, the sort of what would you see as the, as the reasons for Erdogan's continued immense popularity? As opposed to Kaya, I have a boyfriend still. Yeah. <laughs> so, from the night of the coup or yeah. <laughs> before? <laughs> yeah. Before and after. Yeah. <laughs> that night he was in a barbecue party at a friend's place. He's not a political person at all. That's another story. But... Uh, <laughs> I, you know, when there was something happening, I saw the f first footages, like these sloppy soldiers on the Bosporus Bridge, which looked completely ridiculous because we know how a proper, you know, coup looks like from 1980. It doesn't happen like that. You, you know, normally, you know, civilians go to soldiers and they get into, you know, discussion. It doesn't happen like that. They kill you. So it was kind of, what is this? So uh, I called my boyfriend and said, there is something happening. You know, you might want to turn on the TV. And he went, oh, of course, you're exaggerating again, you drama queen. And then 15 minutes passes, you know, there's something, you know, a bit more serious. And then I'm getting the idea there's still, you know, something serious might happen. I'm calling him again, and he's laughing at me and so on. And after another 15 minutes, he was calling me. What's your, you know, send me some money. So I'm going to take money from my ATM, you know, from ATM, from my account. So you don't have to go out. This is cool. Uh, so the reason I tell you this, because... Um, it's, it looks very strange, you know, ridiculous even, funny in a way. You know, most of the audience, not only, you know, in the rest of the world, but in Turkey, thought that this was, you know, a staged act, you know. Uh, and then we learned that actually it, wasn't a, it was a very well-organized, you know, coup attempt uh, in the following days when new footage was released. Uh, but meanwhile, something happened. Everybody in the world watched the first day, first, first night footage. And they thought, what is this, like, stupid thing? 
I've been talking about Turkey for, I don't know, last 10 years in several places in the world. The reaction is changing by time. First, as I told you, I was in, people like me were invisible, and then, you know, there was some concern. They were asking questions and so on. And lately, those concerns are getting more serious. They are more interested, interested in Turkey people from different countries. But after the quarter time, something really interesting happened, if you ask me. I'm afraid Tur- Turkey fell into that category of <coughs> crazy countries where anything can happen. <laughs> This is a very painful thing to say for me. It's, it's not, you know, fun at all. But... Uh, I feel like you know this latest coup attempt made people think that okay anything can happen in this in this country so we don't really have to pay serious attention. But actually the reality is the opposite. Uh, what I think is there is a trend in the world and you're going to be get uh, be affected very soon because I I'm seeing the first signs in Britain. Uh, this is orderism. And, you know, it's, you know, post-truth politics. And, you know, there are many names to it, many cool names to it lately. But, you know, Putin, Trump, these are not accidents of history. This is a trend. And you're having Boris Johnson. You know, pay attention to his discourse, the anti-elite, anti-intellect discourse. You cannot imagine how fast it catches the masses and how... Uh, inflammatory it can become right away and we in Turkey we took secularism democracy so much granted that we never thought that this ridiculous mobilized ignorance would take over the entire country well it does because we cannot come up with a nice argument against these people who are saying so what have you done what is what's good for about democracy We cannot really come up with a good answer at the moment. And there is a, you know, there's a long story behind that. And I think, you know, democracy is going through some sort of crisis uh, on global level. And Turkey is a very good example of, you know, what could happen. I'm not talking about, I'm not a critic of Erdogan, by the way. I'm a critic of the system and the ideology. So uh, I'm not going to brag about, oh, this guy is doing this and that to us. But then, you know, this trend must be, you know, followed very carefully, if you ask me. Uh, it can get into many countries like, you know, France, the right, right is rising there as well, Austria and, you know, many other places. So, you know, I think people have to pay attention to Turkey because of the possible domino effect. That's why this coup is very important, to, very crucial uh, to understand Turkey. This, uh, Turkey is not a crazy country. Uh, Turkey has many people like me, Kaya, who are trying to make sense of everything and who are very much exhausted trying to make sense of the ridicule of the situ- ridiculousness of the situation. But then it's not easy to do it without some sort of international solidarity, some sort of intellectual equal solidarity. Right, I think we should um, probably open up to the audience if anyone's got questions. Could you say something about the Golanist movement, um, which came to the fore, we, I first heard about after the coup. This seems to be a very important strand in Turkish history. And also perhaps about the, the arrests that are taking place now. Can, can you travel back and forth to Turkey, you two? So those are two, two questions. Okay, so yeah, let's jump to go first there. Yeah, the Gulenist is a business network, basically, built on an ideological basis, uh, run by people called Arbis and Ablas, like uh, brothers and sisters. The impression I get it as like a carbonari kind of uh, organization. You don't know, you know the person who's connected to you, but not the other person who's connected to that person. They organize in different institutions, in schools, and. in media, in education, lots of different places. Uh, they have lots of capital accumulation behind them. Uh, so they have these, uh, this capital power. And they also have think tanks and newspapers, which are now closed. It's a, let's say, massive network of people who are really well-educated, who really know 
their profession well. I mean, that, that's my impression. Like, if they're in journalism, they really know about journalism. They intern at New York Times. They learn about how the Washington Post is produced. So they're trying to produce that best, that kind of best newspaper. And if they're like in their fields, they're trying to produce the best. But then it's a very closed organization, and they're very organized in the police department. And when in 2000, uh, a Turkish journalist called Ahmet Şük uh, revealed that they were dangerous because in the police department they were covering up crimes, they were just uh, giving these positions to their friends, that there was something fishy going on, he was locked up. And then other Turkish journalists followed. They were like, yeah, I look at this industry and the same thing happens. You know, the doors are closed to those who are not members of this organization. So their crimes were revealed, actually, in 2000s. But then the journalists who were revealing those crimes were put into prison. Ahmed Sheikh's book was called Imam's Army, and it was confiscated just before it was published. It was a uh, computer file. So uh, we had this knowledge a decade ago, but it wasn't allowed to be shared with the public. Uh, so there's lots of information about them already in Turkey. I think their dissemination is now being made possible after the... Don't you agree? Well, yeah, this is very funny. Because you, the second question was, you know, are you able to go back to your country? So I don't know which one is more dangerous now. You know, uh, one can think that, you know, saying, uh, you know, negative things about uh, Mr. Erdogan might, you know, stop you from, you know, make you uh, make dangerous to go to the country, back to country. But then saying something negative about Fethullah Gülen women can make this environment very dangerous as well because they are very, very, very strong on international level. That's why you're not actually reading a lot about them on mainstream media, negative stuff. CIA former chief, what's his name? Graham Fuller, or was it? Yeah. yeah. Graham Fuller, okay, this is one thing I'm going to tell about Fethullah Gülen woman, and I think you're going to understand what I'm talking about. Graham Fuller, after the 15th of July military coup attempt, uh, Graham Fuller wrote a very much praising piece about Fethullah Gülen woman on Wall Street Journal. I rest my case. This is a very long story, which uh, starts in 1960s, very, very roughly, uh, when you know uh, the, the world, when NATO was, you know, getting stronger, when uh, communism was the mother of all evils. Uh, there was uh, only one thing to support against communism, like in Afghanistan, uh, the Islamists. So they chose their jeune premier in a way, and these guys were the, you know leading actors of that time. So, and it's not AKP government supported Fethullah Gülen movement. It's every government since 19 military, 1980 military coup supported Fethullah Gülen government. You know, there is this uh, dichotomy. Turkish army is the castle of secularism, whereas there are the real people of Turkey, you know, Muslim and so on. This is not true. 19 military, 1980 military coup was uh, the, you know, it was uh, the army during 19 military coup, 1980 military coup that brought the religious lessons to Serikalum. It was 1980 military coup that supported all the Islamic movement against, against the leftists. So it was, it wasn't like, you know, the last 10 years there was this Fethullah Gülen movement appearing all over. It's not like that. It's a supranational network which have, I don't know, hundreds, maybe thousands of schools all over the planet from, you know, poles to uh, jungles of Africa. This is a very uh, complicated matter that investigative journalists should be working on. And they are. I think there's going to be a massive file on BBC. I don't know how it's, they're going to report about it, but you're going to be hearing a lot about these people. I'm, I'm no fan of the AKP at all, uh, Erdogan or, or his, his predecessors. However, you know, they were elected democratically. So on that basis, absolutely fine. I cannot understand, I still cannot understand how this coup came about. I, mean, I think you, 
one of you described it as sort of being amateurish and not like any other coups and that sort of thing. I mean, is there any sense, is it all just conspiracy theory that it, it could have been a put-up job and that sort of thing, so that Erdogan could have could walk through and, and do all the things that he's done and, and sort of clean the Orgian stable in his terms? Or I, I just don't understand. And it, it just seems everything in Turkey has gone back, say, to 1980 or maybe even beyond. From what I read in Turkish media, the purge would already take place because they already identified the people who would be purged in the State Department, in the military. And so, like, top generals who knew that they would be purged uh, made this desperate move to, you know, grab power and then stop that purge that would already take place uh, because there was a military meeting in August, the Turkish military would convene, And so that was like their last chance, their last shot at the dark. And it didn't work. It just uh, made the purge more easy to do and legitimized it in most people's eyes because even if it were not for the, the military uprising, the coup attempt, maybe people would be more, have more questions about what was going on. But I think it was like a desperate attempt to stop the purge that would already take place. That's um, at least that's how the Turkish media uh, reported on this. Can I just then ask, um, how how do you think that would be allowed to happen to have this purge? If you say, as you say, people were already earmarked uh, to be to be moved out of the way. Um, I mean, in terms of of uh, holding holding the government to account, is it just that the Erdogan government is just so all powerful and all pervading? that they could, you know, they could suppress any sort of criticism. Because they're very well organized and in all different institutions, including the governing party, of course, the conservatives, there are lots of goodness in the party as well, and also in the intelligence community, the police department. So, like, the intelligence is prepared for the, uh, for the government by those people. You know, how, how can you be faster than them? How, it's like an information war. Turkish intelligence agency learned about it just, I think, four hours before the coup. It was just like four hours, and if it wasn't for that, then it could have succeeded. You can't think about what's going on without the coup itself, you know, because the coup attempt happened. We cannot just uh, delete it out of history, you know, it's uh, because it had been this traumatic event for, for many people, like hundreds of people died, and... Um, We had this fearful night. It's the thing that people will remember, I think, from the summer, more than the purge. So, uh, is there anything to the... Thank God, I'm not a journalist anymore because these things uh, are so obscure to report about. But then, uh, there is this, uh, you know, I'm doing a tiny bit of reasoning here, and this political power did not need such a setup to do the purge. Because, well, many of you might not know it, but 10 years ago there was a similar purge on secular people which wasn't reported on Western media as much as it is now being reported. There wasn't New York Times opinion pieces about that. First it was, you know, the top generals of the army, you know, allegedly plotting a you know, coup against the government. But then it included intellectuals, journalists, lawyers, students, everybody. And, you know, this government uh, actually built a gigantic prison out of Istanbul, and they built a courthouse within that prison, you see? That was how, you know, uh, what do you call it, like a Bundist manufacturing thing, you know. They were uh, judging the person, uh, making, making the decision, and then you just have to walk to yourself. So this purge, in a similar purge, has happened in Turkey without an actual coup attempt. That's why I think it's not, uh, it, it was real. And for many other reasons, I do think that. But, you know, this, the, important, the interesting part is there was another purge that you didn't really hear about. Uh, as a Lebanese, I was compelled by uh, by your Marhaba. comment <laughs> Marhaba. Um, about b- basically this notion of uh, uh, forgetfulness and and its effects on poli- on domestic politics and the various narrative that makes. So my question to you is, I mean, is is really um, do you think that also part of 
forgetting about what happened is is a reflection of the weakening of the institution and the and the erosion of checks and balances and quality of institution in, in, in our part of the world. But and do you think this multiple narratives actually that you're talking about that uh, echoes the Lebanese uh, uh, basically model is is at risk of endangering the notion of a Turkish identity or you don't believe there is one anyway? You know what? Actually, I do think that you and I have an identity. This is this is funny. I I think not funny. Of course, this is deeply tragic, but. I think there has been a colossal sweeping uh, motion from southern hemisphere to northern hemisphere. And this sweeping motion only sweeps those of us who cannot uh, deal with the creeping conservatism. So from Lebanon, from Iran, from Iraq, from Afghanistan, from Turkey, all of us are coming to you know northern hemisphere and ending up London Review of Books internationally <laughs> suffering. Yeah? yeah? So I think we have an identity that way. We have a common identity. You know, my pain would be felt by an Iranian intellectual who had to leave his country and we could all cry together drinking Arak, yeah? Forgetting, and we, you said one word, forgetting and something, uh, institutions. Yeah. So I think you told about this democracy and they have the majority, they're, wi- they're the winning party, the AKP and so on. If democracy have became the ballot boxes, not only in Turkey, in many countries as well, because of the weakening institutions. You know, they, don't, they want a democracy without unions, without associations. I wouldn't say civil society, that's a very mm, dangerous word, but you know, all these uh, political activism, they want to remove that from the public sphere and now you have democracy, clean and nice. So when you have that kind of democracy, uh, you have ballot boxes, uh, populist discourses, and that makes it everything e- very easy. You can rewrite history in one second because nobody knows, nobody reads anything, and those who are reading, you stop, you know, you, you make them shut up. Hi. So um, I can't offer you intellectual solidarity, but I offer you solidarity. Um, and I'm, I'm still, still grappling with this concept that Gulen was a creation of Operation Gladio. And, you know, he was working with the military until they, you know, um, took him down in 97. So I, but I guess it just sort of illustrates my question that I wanted to ask, which is about the longevity and significance of, you know, big men politicians, big male politicians in Turkey. I mean, the sort of half-life of the Turkish politician is extraordinarily long. And I think, you know, when you look at the stories and you look at the kind of the, the conspiracies, it's being projected onto Gelen, or you're talking about the significance of Ataturk. And I think there's something very, you know, unique, well, maybe only unique to Turkey, but certainly very different from this country. And so I was wondering about your, your thoughts on, on that feature of Turkish politics. The coup seemed to be turned aside when Erdogan appeared on, you know, his iPhone, yeah. speaking to the masses, telling them to mobilize. You know, the narratives in Turkey are about Ataturk, you know, the man mm. who saved the nation. Um, you look at someone like Bartoli or Edjavit, you know, it always seems to be the same few oh, yeah, figures in Turkish politics, cycle, ongoing, mean. the same. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's not, in Middle East, and my Lebanese friend there would, you know, agree with me on this, I think. We have this uh, different type of love uh, for our leaders. You know, it's like, you know, being in love with someone uh, and uh, devoting yourself and so on. So this is not something specific to Turkey to start with. But then, yeah, and as I told before, this is not only about Middle East or Turkey, but also for other countries. They want to see the strong men, which is another sign of weakening institutions, I think. Well, if you ask me, when world decided uh, to avoid political thinking, we ended up with this strong man uh, cult in politics. Uh, when politics and ideology became the, you know, no, no word, uh, we ended up with this strong man who is able to do anything, who feels like, uh, who, who makes people like going to barbecue party. You know, this is the, as you know, the, during the American elections, this is one of the parameters. Do you want to go to the barbecue party with Hillary Clinton or, you know, Trump? This is political thinking now. Yeah, also on the left of the divide too, like the most successful politician was Bülent Ecevit and he was a strong man who fought against the US, you know, like he was like, he got the wind of uh, leftist movements behind him and he was like, I'm not going to be the centrist politician, I'm going to be 
the leftist politician who's standing against the U.S. and its interests. And if it's necessary, I'm gonna send some soldiers to Cyprus. I'm gonna be, you know, I'm just gonna uh, be strong and brave. And that was the that was the highest moments for Turkey's left. I mean, also on the left, people are looking for or expecting or anticipating these strong figures. It doesn't have to be like physically strong, like very tall or like you know broad shoulders, but passionate about ideas and uh, willing to stand up to some powers. You know, like if you're on the left, uh, for example, people like Hugo Chavez has lots of uh, lots of respectability in Turkey. People like that kind of uh, leftist figure. But then we have like Tony Blair, that, that kind of. Politician who sells out, you know, that, 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 that's what we yeah. call liberal, you know, that, that's in the left, that's, that's yeah. the liberal left. Yeah. But uh, I think, I don't know, apart from Bülent Ejevit, who's, who's the most successful, I think he, he's the one on the only in the 20th yeah. century. He's, well, he's the most successful, and then he was, you know, brought down by a military coup. <laughs> right. I think uh, now we're going to just hear a few thoughts from Melody, who's from Index on Censorship. Uh, well, first of all, thank you for our wonderful speakers and, and, and chair. And um, just to tell you a few words very briefly about Index on Censorship and the work that we are uh, doing in Turkey at the moment. So Index is a freedom of expression organization. Uh, we work globally, but in the we've been working a lot on Turkey. And as you know, um, Kaya is a contributor uh, contributing editor of the Index on Censorship magazine. In the summer issues, he, he wrote about uh, the radical um, magazine, which was this left, leftist outlet that was, um, well, eventually banned at some point. Um, in, Index follows the monitors the situation uh, in terms of media freedom in Turkey. We've got a project that um, documents, we try to, it, it's very difficult at the moment, but we try to document every single arrest uh, every single imprisonment, uh, even when journalists are being charged, quite often on terror charges or charges related to terrorism. Well, increasingly the case at the moment with lots of accusations with the FETO organization be becoming a terrorist organization. We try to support artists as much as we can. We had the visit uh, last week of a previous Index Awards winner, who is the musician uh, Shenar Sorry for my pronunciation. But yes, so just to say that uh, feel free to explore the Index website to find out more about uh, our current work. The next issue of the magazine, which is out really soon, uh, will have more articles about Turkey and what is going on there with uh, even a, a piece of um, fiction by Kaya, an article by uh, Jean Dundar, the former editor of Dumouriez. Something by Hilary Mantel, I think. yes. Yes, yeah. as well. Yeah. So, so yes, feel free to, to explore um, all of the things that, that we are doing. But just to reiterate that the, the space, indeed, we, we, we discussed this tonight, but the space for free expression and the, the space for expression in Turkey is shrinking. Well, you don't like civil society as a term, but yeah. <laughs> lots of people in Turkey do need uh, to be supported and to get their voices heard. And that's... Um, part of what Index is, is doing. So. On, uh, on that note, I think Geth lets parting thoughts from you both, and it's a broad question, I warn you. So what are, you, are you optimistic about, about, the sort of, about the future of Turkey? So, Don't ask me that question. I'm not a good answer. Yeah, okay, I'm, I'm not, not giving good answers yeah. to that question. Yeah, there's a cycle of energy, political yeah. release of energies. Yeah. It's like every three years. Yeah. And I like it, you know. Um, it's like when you when you see on the streets people yeah. passionate about their thoughts, yeah. like uh, defending it. People po being more political, willing more to speak about politics. I prefer it to 2000s when politics was like seen as some, you know, outdated thing. So in that sense, uh, I'm optimistic. Well, Turkey is, you know, the popular, po most popular joke in Turkey is like Game of Thrones. You know, if you are bored of Game of Thrones, come and see the Turkish politics and so on. <laughs> uh, but uh, knowing my country is a very trouble, troublesome thing. But then it's this trouble, trouble has a sweet side, side of it. Uh, you will gain a lot of very lively people as friends. 
So that's why, actually, I think one should know about a country. Uh, otherwise, why would you waste your time with another crazy country in the world? Uh, I think there are very good people living in Turkey who would be very interesting to know. And I try to talk about them in the book more than the bad guys. So hopefully you like the country because I do love yeah. my country. Yeah. <laughs> Please join me in giving a big round of applause to Karen Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. <laughs>